Chapter 20 of Hereditary Genius by Francis Galton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 20. The Comparative Worth of Different Races. I have now completed what I have to say concerning the kinships of individuals, and proceed, in this chapter, to attempt a wider treatment of my subject through a consideration of nations and races. Every long-established race has necessarily its peculiar fitness for the conditions under which it has lived, owing to the sure operation of Darwin's law of natural selection. However, I am not much concerned for the present with the greater part of those aptitudes, but only with such as are available in some form or other of high civilization. We may reckon upon the advent of a time when civilization, which is now sparse and feeble and far more superficial than it is vaunted to be, shall overspread the globe. Ultimately, it is sure to do so, because civilization is the necessary fruit of high intelligence when found in a social animal, and there is no plainer lesson to be read off the face of nature than that of the result of the operation of her laws is to evoke intelligence in connection with sociability. Intelligence is as much an advantage to an animal as physical strength or any other natural gift, and therefore, out of two varieties of any race of animal who are equally endowed in other respects, the most intelligent variety is sure to prevail in the battle of life. Similarly, among animals as intelligent as man, the most social race is sure to prevail, other qualities being equal. Under even a very moderate form of material civilization, a vast number of aptitudes acquired through the survivorship of the fittest and the unsparing destruction of the unfit for hundreds of generations have become as obsolete as the old male coach habits and customs since the establishment of railroads, and there is not the slightest use in attempting to preserve them. They are hindrances, and not gains to civilization. I shall refer to some of these a little further on, but I will first speak of the qualities needed in civilized society. They are, speaking generally, such as will enable a race to supply a large contingent to the various groups of eminent men, of whom I have treated in my several chapters. Without going so far as to say that this very convenient test is perfectly fair, we are at all events justified in making considerable use of it as I will do in the estimates I am about to give. In comparing the worth of different races, I shall make frequent use of the law of deviation from the average, to which I have already been much beholden. And, to save the reader's time and patience, I propose to act upon an assumption that would require a good deal of discussion to limit, and to which the reader may at first demur, but which cannot lead to any error of importance in a rough provisional inquiry. I shall assume that the intervals between the grades of ability are the same in all the races, that is, if the ability of class A of one race be equal to the ability of class C in another, then the ability of class B of the former shall be supposed equal to that of the class D of the latter, and so on. I know this cannot be strictly true, for it would be in defiance of analogy of the variability of all races were precisely the same. But, on the other hand, there is good reason to expect that the error introduced by the assumption cannot sensibly affect the offhand results for which I alone, I propose to employ it. Moreover, the rough data I shall adduce will go far to show the justice of this expectation. Let us then compare the Negro race with the Anglo-Saxon, with respect to those qualities alone which are capable of producing judges, statesmen, commanders, men of literature and science, poets, artists, and divines. If the Negro race in America had been affected by no social disabilities, a comparison of their achievements with those of the whites in their several branches of intellectual effort having regard to the total number of their respective populations, would give the necessary information. As matters stand, we must be content with much rougher data. 
First, the Negro race has occasionally, but very rarely, produced such men as to assent to the overture, who are of our class, upper F, that is to say, its upper X, or its total classes above upper G, appear to correspond with our upper F, showing a difference of not less than two grades between the blacks and white races, and it may be more. Secondly, the Negro race is by no means wholly deficient in men capable of becoming good factors, thriving merchants, and otherwise considerably raised above the average of whites. That is to say, it cannot unfrequently supply men corresponding to our class upper C or even upper D. It will be recollected that upper C implies a selection of 1 in 16, or somewhat more than the natural abilities possessed by average four men of common juries, and that upper D is as 1 in 64 a degree of ability that is sure to make a man successful in life. In short, classes upper E and upper F for the Negro may roughly be considered as the equivalent of our upper C and upper D, a result which again points to the conclusion that the average intellectual standard of the Negro race is some two grades below our own. Thirdly, we may compare, but with much caution, the relative position of Negroes in their native country with that of the travellers who visit them. The latter, no doubt, bring with them the knowledge current in civilised lands, but that is an advantage of less importance, as we are apt to suppose. A native chief has as good an education in the art of ruling men as can be desired. He is continually exercised in personal government, and usually maintains his place by the ascendancy of his character, shown every day over his subjects and rivals. A traveller in wild countries also fills, to a certain degree, the position of a commander, and as to confront native chiefs at every inhabited place, the result is familiar enough. The white traveller almost invariably holds his own in their presence. It is seldom that we hear of a white traveller meeting with a black chief, whom he feels to be the better man. I have often discussed this subject with competent persons, and can only recall a few cases of the inferiority of the white man, certainly not more than might be ascribed to an average actual difference of three grades, of which one may be due to the relative demerits of native education, and the remaining two to a difference in natural gifts. Fourthly, the number among the Negroes of those whom we should call half-witted men is very large. Every book alluding to Negro servants in America is full of instances. I was myself much impressed by this fact during my travels in Africa. The mistakes the Negroes made in their own matters were so childish, stupid, and simpleton-like as frequently to make me ashamed of my own species. I do not think it any exaggeration to say that their lower C is as low as our lower E, which will be a difference of two grades, as before. I have no information as to actual idiocy among the Negroes, I mean, of course, of that class of idiocy which is not due to disease. The Australian type is at least one grade below the African Negro. I possess a few serviceable data about the natural capacity of the Australian, but not sufficient to induce me to invite the reader to consider them. The average standard of the lowland Scotch and the English North Country men is decidedly a fraction of a grade superior to that of the ordinary English, because the number of the former who attain to eminence is far greater than the proportionate number of their race would have led us to expect. The same superiority is distinctly shown by a comparison of the well-being of the masses of the population, for the Scotch labourer is much less of a drudge than the English men of the Midland countries. He does his work better, and lives his life besides. The peasant women of Northumberland work all day in the fields, and are not broken down by the work. On the contrary, they take pride in their efficiency labour as girls, and when married, they attend well to the comfort of their homes. 
It is perfectly distressing to me to witness the draggled, drudged, mean look of the mass of individuals, especially of the women, that one meets in the streets of London and other purely English towns. The conditions of their life seem too hard for their constitutions, and to be crushing them into degeneracy. The ablest race of whom history bears record is unquestionably the ancient Greek, partially because their masterpieces in the principal departments of intellectual activity are still unsurpassed, and in many respects unequalled and partially because the population that gave birth to the creators of those masterpieces was very small. Of the various Greek sub-races, that of Attica was the ablest, and she was no doubt largely indebted to the following cause for her superiority. Athens opened her arms to immigrants, but not indiscriminately, for her social life was such that none but very able men could take any pleasure in it. On the other hand, she offered attractions such as men of the highest ability and culture could find in no other city. Thus, by a system of partially unconscious selection, she built up a, a magnificent breed of human animals, which, in the space of one century, viz. between 530 and 430 BC, produced the following illustrious persons, 14 in number. Statesmen and commanders, Themistocles, Mother and Alien, Miltiades, Aristides, Simon, son of Miltiades, Pericles, son of Xanthippus, the victor of Michael, literary and scientific men, Thucydides, Socrates, Xenophon, Plato, poets, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, Aristophanes, sculptor, Phidias. We are able to make a closely approximate estimate of the population that produced these men, because the number of the inhabitants of Attica has been a matter of frequent inquiry, and critics appear at length to be quite agreed in the general results. It seems that the little district of Attica contained during its most flourishing period Smith's Dictionary of Greek and Roman Geography, less than 90,000 native free-born persons, 40,000 resident aliens, and a labouring and artisan population of 400,000 slaves. The first item is the only one that concerns us here, namely the 90,000 free-born persons. Again, the common estimate that population renews itself three times in a century is very close to the truth, and may be accepted in the present case. Consequently, we have to deal with the population of 270,000 free-born persons, or 135,000 males, born in the century I have named. Of these, about one-half, or 67,500, would survive the age of 26, and one-third, or 45,000, would survive that of 50. As 14 Athenians became illustrious, the selection is only as 1 to 4, 822 in respect to the former limitation, and as 1 to 3, 214 in respect to the latter. Referring to the table on page 34, it will be seen that this degree of selection corresponds very fairly to the classes upper F, 1 in 4,300 and above, of the Athenian race. Again, as upper G is 1 16th or 1 17th as numerous as upper F, it would be reasonable to expect to find one of class G among the 14. We might, however, by accident, meet with two, three, or even four of that class, say Pericles, Socrates, Plato, and Phidias. Now let us compare the Athenian standard of ability with that of our own race and time. We have no men to put by the side of Socrates and Phidias, because the millions of all Europe, breeding as they have done for the subsequent 2,000 years, have never produced their equals. They are, therefore, two or three grades above our upper G. They might rank as upper I or upper J, but suppose we do not count them at all. 
saying that some freak of nature acting at that time may have produced them. What must we say about the rest? Pericles and Plato would rank, I suppose, the one among the greatest of philosophical statesmen, and the other as at least the equal of Lord Bacon. They would therefore stand somewhere among our unclassed upper X, one or two grades above upper G. Let us call them between upper H and upper I. All the remainder, the upper F of the Athenian race, would rank above our upper G, and equal or close upon our upper H. It follows from all this that the average ability of the Athenian race is, on the lowest possible estimate, nearly two grades higher than our own. That is, about as much as our race is above that of the African Negro. This estimate, which may seem prodigious to some, is confirmed by the quick intelligence and high culture of the Athenian commonality, before whom literary works were recited and works of art exhibited, of a far more severe character than could possibly be appreciated by the average of our race the calibre of whose intellect is easily gouged by a glance at the contents of a railway bookstore. We know and may guess something more of the reason why this marvellously gifted race declined. Social morality grew exceedingly lax, marriage became unfashionable and was avoided. Many of the more ambitious and accomplished women were avowed courtesans and consequently infertile, and the mothers of the incoming population were of a heterogeneous class. In a small sea-bordered country where emigration and immigration are constantly going on and where the manners are as dissolute as were those of Greece in the period of which I speak, the purity of a race would necessarily fail. It can be, therefore, no surprise to us, though it has been a severe misfortune to humanity, that the high Athenian breed decayed and disappeared. For if it had maintained its excellence and had multiplied and spread over large countries, displacing inferior populations, which it well might have done, for it was exceedingly prolific, it would assuredly have accomplished results advantageous to human civilization to a degree that transcends our power of imagination. If we could raise the average standard of our race by only one grade, what vast changes would be produced? The number of men of natural gifts equal to those of the eminent men of the present day would be necessarily increased more than tenfold, as will be seen by the fourth column in the table, page 34, because there would be 2,000 423 of them in each million instead of only 233. But far more important to the progress of civilization would be the increase in the yet higher orders of intellect. We know how intimately the course of events is dependent on the thoughts of a few illustrious men. If the first-rate men in the different groups had never been born, even if those among them who have had a place in my appendices on account of their hereditary gifts had never existed, the world would be very different to what it is. Now, the table shows that the numbers of these, in the loftiest grades of intellect, would be increased in a still higher proportion than that of which I have been speaking. Thus, the men that now rank under the class upper G would be increased seventeenfold by raising the average ability of the whole nation a single grade. We see by the table that all England contains, on the average, of course, of several years, only six men between the ages of thirty and eighty whose natural gifts exceed class upper G. But in a country of the same population as ours, whose average was one grade higher, there would be 82 of such men, and in another whose average was two grades higher, such as I believe the Athenian to have been, in the interval 530 to 430 BC, no less than 1,355 of them would be found. There is no improbability that so gifted a breed being able to maintain itself, as Athenian experience rightly understood has sufficiently proved and as has also been proved by what I have written about the judges, whose fertility is undoubted, although their average natural ability is up ref, or 5.5 degrees above the average of our own, and 3.5 above that of the average Athenians. 
It seems to me most essential to the well-being of future generations that the average standard of ability of the present time should be raised. Civilization is a new condition imposed upon man by the course of events, just as in the history of geological changes new conditions have continually been imposed on different races of animals. They have had the effect either of modifying the nature of the races through the process of natural selection, whenever the changes were sufficiently low and the race sufficiently pliant, or of destroying them altogether, when the changes were too abrupt, or the race unyielding. The number of the races of mankind that have been entirely destroyed under the pressure of the requirements of an incoming civilization reads us a terrible lesson. Probably, in no former period of the world has the destruction of the races of any animal whatever been effected over such wide areas and with such startling rapidity as in the case of savage man. In the North American continent, in the West Indian Islands, in the Cape of Good Hope, in Australia, New Zealand and Van Diemen's Land, the human denizens of vast regions have been entirely swept away in the short space of three centuries less by the pressure of a stronger race than through the influence of a civilization they were incapable of supporting. And we too, the foremost laborers in creating this civilization, are beginning to show ourselves incapable of keeping pace with our own work. The needs of centralization, communication and culture call for more brains and mental stamina than the average of our race possesses. We are in crying want for a greater fund of ability in all stations of life, for neither the classes of statesmen, philosophers, artisans, nor labourers are up to the modern complexity of their several professions. An extended civilization like ours comprises more interests than the ordinary statesmen or philosophers or our present race are capable of dealing with when it exacts more intelligent work than our ordinary artisans and labourers are capable of performing. Our race is overweighed and appears likely to be drudged into degeneracy by demands that exceed its powers. If its average ability were raised a grade or two, our new classes, upper F and upper G, would conduct the complex affairs of the state at home and abroad as easily as our present, upper F and upper G, when in the position of country squires, are able to manage the affairs of their establishments and tenantry. All other classes of the community would be similarly promoted to the level of work required by the 19th century, if the average standard of the race were raised. When the severity of the struggle for existence is not too great for the powers of the race, its action is healthy and conservative, otherwise it is deadly, just as we may see exemplified in the scanty, wretched vegetation that leads a precarious existence near the summer snow line of the Alps, and disappears altogether a little higher up. We want as much backbone as we can get, but bear the racket to which we are henceforward to be exposed, and as good brains as possible to contrive machinery for modern life to work as smoothly than at present. We can, in some degree, raise the nature of man to a level with the new conditions imposed upon his existence, and we can also, in some degree, modify the conditions to suit his name. It is clearly right that both these powers should be exerted, with the view of bringing his nature and the conditions of his existence into a close harmony as possible. In proportion as the world becomes filled with mankind, the relations of society necessarily increase in complexity and the nomadic disposition found in most barbarians becomes unsuitable to the novel conditions. There is a most unusual unanimity in respect to the causes of incapacity of savages for civilization among writers on those hunting and migratory nations who are brought into contact with advancing colonization and perish, as they invariably do, by the contact. They tell us that the labor of such men is neither constant nor steady, that the love of a wandering, independent life prevents their settling anywhere to work 
except for a short time, when urged by want and encouraged by kind treatment. Meadows says that the Chinese call the barbarous races on their borders by a phrase which means hither and thither, not fixed, and any amounts of evidence might be adduced to show how deeply bohemian habits of one kind or another were ingrained in the nature of the men who inhabited most parts of the earth, now overspread by the Anglo-Saxon and other civilised races. Luckily, there is still room for adventure, and a man who feels the cravings of a roving, adventurous spirit to be too strong for a resistance may yet find a legitimate outlet for it in either colonies, in the army, or on board ship. But such a spirit is, on the whole, a heirloom that brings more impatient restlessness and beatings of the wings against cage bars than persons of more civilised characters can readily comprehend, and it is directly at war with the more modern portion of our moral natures. If a man be purely a nomad, he has only to be nomadic, and his instinct is satisfied, but no Englishmen of the 19th century are purely nomadic. The most so among them have also inherited many civilised cravings and are necessarily starved when they become wanderers, in the same way as the wandering instincts are starved when they are settled at home. Consequently, their nature is opposite wants, which can never be satisfied except by chance, through some very exceptional turn of circumstances. This is a serious calamity, and as the bohemianism in the nature of our race is destined to perish, the sooner it goes the happier for mankind. The social requirements of English life are steadily destroying it. No man who only works by fits and starts is able to obtain his living nowadays, for he has not a chance of thriving in competition for steady workmen. If his nature revolts against the monotony of daily labour, he is tempted to the public house, to intemperance, and it may be to poaching, and a much more serious crime. Otherwise he banishes himself from our shores. In the first case he is unlikely to leave as many children as men of more domestic and marrying habits, and in the second case his breed is wholly lost to England. By this steady riddance of the bohemian spirit of our race, the artesian part of our population is slowly becoming bred to its duties, and the primary qualities of the typical modern British workmen are already the very opposite of those of the nomad. What they are now, as well described by Mr. Chadwick, are consisting of great bodily strength applied under the command of a steadily preserving will, mental self-contentedness, impassivity to external irrelevant impressions which carry them through the continued repetition of toilsome labour, steady as time. It is curious to remark how unimportant in modern civilization has become the once famous and thoroughbred-looking nomad. The type of his features, which is probably in some degree correlated with his peculiar form of adventurous disposition, is no longer characteristic of our rulers, and is rarely found among celebrities of the present day, is more often met with among the undistinguished members of highly born families, and especially among the less conspicuous officers of the army. Modern leading men in all parts of eminence, as may easily be seen in a collection of photographs, are of a coarser and more robust breed, less excitable and dashing, but endowed with far more ruggedness and real vigour. Such also is the case as regards the German portion of the Austrian nation. They are far more high caste in appearance than the Prussians, who are so plain that it is disagreeable to travel northwards from Vienna, and watch the change, yet the Prussians appear possessed of the greater moral and physical stamina. Much more alien to the genius of an enlightened civilization than the nomadic habit is the impulsive and uncontrolled nature of the savage. A civilized man must bear and forbear. He must keep before his mind the claims of the morrow as clearly as those of the passing minute of the absent as well as the present. This is the most trying of the new conditions imposed on man by civilization, and the one that makes it hopeless for any but exceptional natures among savages to live under them. 
The instinct of a savage is admirably constant with the needs of savage life. Every day he is in danger through transient causes. He lives from hand to mouth, in the hour and for the hour, without care for the past or forethought for the future. But such as instinct is utterly at fault in civilized life, the half-reclaimed savage, being unable to deal with more subjects of consideration than are directly before him, is continually doing acts through mere melodramatis and incapacity, at which he is afterwards deeply grieved and annoyed. The nearer inducements always seem to him, through his uncorrected sense of moral perspective, to be incurably larger than others of the same actual size, but more remote, consequently, with the temptation of the moment has been yielded to and passed away, and its bitter result comes in its turn before the man. He is amazed and remorseful at his past weakness. It seems incredible that he should have done that yesterday, which today seems so silly, so unjust, and so unkindly. The newly reclaimed barbarian, with the impulsive, unstable nature of the savage, when lie also chances to be gifted with a peculiarly generous and affectionate disposition, is of all others the man most oppressed with the sense of sin. Now it is a just assertion and a common theme of moralists of many creeds that man, such as we find him, is born with an imperfect nature. He has lofty aspirations, but there is a weakness in his disposition which incapacitates him from carrying his nobler purposes into effect. He sees that some particular course of action is his duty, and should be his delight, but his inclinations are fickle and base, and do not conform to his better judgment. The whole moral nature of man is tainted with sin, which prevents him from doing the things he knows to be right. The explanation I offer of this apparent anomaly seems perfectly satisfactory from a scientific point of view. It is neither more nor less than that of the development of our nature, whether under Darwin's law or of natural selection, or through the effects of changed ancestral habits, has not yet overtaken the development of our moral civilization. Man was barbarous but yesterday, and therefore it is not to be expected that the natural aptitudes of his race should already have become moulded into accordance with his very recent advance. We, men of the present centuries, are like animals suddenly transplanted among new conditions of climate and of food. Our instincts fail us under the altered circumstances. My theory is confirmed by the fact that the members of old civilizations are far less sensible than recent converts from barbarism, of their nature being inadequate to their moral needs. The conscience of a negro is aghast at his own wild, impulsive nature, and is easily stirred by a preacher. But it is scarcely possible to ruffle the self-complacency of a steady-going Chinaman. The sense of original sin would show, according to my theory, not that man was fallen from a higher state, but that he was rising in moral culture with more rapidity than the nature of his race could follow. My view is corroborated by the conclusion reached at the end of each of the many independent lines of ethnological research, that the human race were utter savages in the beginning, and that, after my raids of years of barbarism, man has but very recently found his way into the paths of morality and civilization. End of chapter 20